Hello and welcome to the Library Cafe, a weekly program of table talk with scholars and librarians about research and the formation and circulation of knowledge. I'm Thomas Hill. I'm very pleased today, starting off the semester, to have as my guest on the show my dear friend of many years, Olga Bush. Olga is an historian of Islamic art and architecture and a visiting associate professor at Bard College. We're going to be talking about her new monograph entitled Reframing the Alhambra, Architecture, Poetry, Textiles, and Court Ceremonial. The book was published by Edinburgh University Press in 2018 as part of their series uh, Studies in Islamic Art. And the book was also a finalist in the College Art Association's Charles Rufus Mori Book Award. Hello, Olga. Hello, Tom. Thank you so much for reading my book <laughs> and for inviting me. <laughs> To, I'm so pleased to, to have you here. Table talk. Yeah. I've watched you write this book over many years, yes. So the book is something of a work of a lifetime, isn't it, in terms of the number of years you have put into it. It is a long term project for it you. It was yeah. a very long term project, yeah. yes. It came yes. out of your dissertation? It did come out of my dissertation. At, at NYU, at, at the at Institute NYU of Fine Arts. At NYU, at the Institute of Fine Arts. It took a long time because I was also working on other research projects uh-huh. at the same time as yeah. I was writing the book. You were doing other things too. Teaching at Vassar was one of them. You had a postdoc. I had a postdoc at the Islamic Department uh-huh. in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And then I had, a few years later, a senior research fellowship uh-huh. there as well. So that gave me time to do a lot of research, a uh-huh. lot of thinking, reading, and writing, and not teach. But I did teach for a few years at Vassar. I also taught for a few years at SUNY New uh-huh. And then you had to learn Arabic, of course, didn't you? I did along have the to. Way. <laughs> along the way, yeah, I did just... have to learn Arabic in order to read Arabic poetry and to read some historical texts yeah. pertinent to the monument yeah. that I was studying. And then you do have Spanish also, yes, because you're working in Spain and your husband, Andy, is in the Spanish department. Uh, yes, I do have Spanish and most of the scholarship, certainly 20th century scholarship about the Alhambra or about medieval Spain in general is really generated in Spain, uh-huh. written in Spanish. Uh-huh. So yeah. you cannot be working on any Spanish topic without reading Spanish. Spanish. That's interesting. And then also, I remember you coaching me on my Russian the first time I made a telephone call to Russia. So you have Russian, yes, also. Well, that's my native language. Happily, your publisher here seems to have served you very well, Edinburgh University Press, because it's a beautiful book, really beautifully illustrated with color plates and other illustrations throughout the book. Beautifully done notes, of course, and a bibliography and scholarly appendices at the end. So I expect this was a long project, and you must have been in communication with the publisher quite some time, yes? It was a long project. Um, The publishing team, the editorial team, was really excellent, Mm -hmm. accommodating me in many ways in the suggestions as to the layout of the book, uh, the size of the photographs, and it's so lavishly illustrated because they really told me that I can publish as many color photographs as I want. Uh So that every photograph can be in color, which is rather unusual for Uh academic presses these days. So only diagrams and schematic drawings and plans are in black and white, but otherwise all the photography is in color. So did you have to get permissions for the photographs, or did they do that for you? Most of the photographs are my own, but in order to photograph in the Alhambra, you have to get permission, because Mm -hmm. a lot of the spaces are also closed, and you are not allowed to take 
more or less semi-professional photographs of publications. Mm -hmm. So I did get permissions and photographs of objects come from museums with permissions, of course. So you must have spent quite a lot of time in the Alhambra itself in Granada, yes? Very happily so. So I've spent many, many, many summers in in Granada and of course a lot of the time in the library or in the uh, research center Mm -hmm. in Granada, which is called Escuela de Estudios Árabes, the Uh School of Arabic Studies. It has the most fantastic library if you do anything medieval, Mm -hmm. medieval Muslim Spain. So I've spent a lot of time there. Yeah, interesting. I get a sense from the book that you're there in a way, that you couldn't possibly do this kind of research remotely, that you have to know the place so that you know when you turn around this is what you're going to see. So spatially, I mean, there's a sense that you really know the place really well, like somebody who's lived in the place almost, isn't there? Well, I'm very that, glad yeah. that that, <laughs> that sense was true. conveyed, that, yeah. <laughs> that, does, I, yeah, that yeah, I've yeah. been there, yeah, yeah, so. <laughs> that I've worked there. So, like many older monuments, the Alhambra has been subject to revisions and restorations and renovations and attempts at restorations, I guess, over the years. And your book has partly to do with sorting out the original building and its uses from later accretions and refurbishments that have taken place since the period when it was built. So you discuss previous scholarship quite extensively, and you know, without going into too much detail, I wonder if you could talk about the great Victorian study of the Alhambra that was done by Owen Jones that really still stands out, stands out in your book for sure, and it's a name that I was familiar with. So I wonder if you could talk about Owen Jones. He's been badly treated by critics for a while, and I got the sense that you were trying to rehabilitate, you know, to some extent, or maybe... Uh, yeah, in a way, yeah, yes, yeah. because he was a trained architect. Mm-hmm. He went to the uh, Alhambra and actually stayed there for quite a while, did architectural drawings to scale, mm-hmm. examined all the polychromy. Mm-hmm. So it's not that he really invented his theory of color and then tried to fit Alhambra into uh-huh. it, not at all. He was there at a crucial moment when the very first official royal conservator Mm -hmm. was appointed at the Alhambra. His name is Rafael Contreras, and he kind of established a whole dynasty. His son and then Mm -hmm. his grandson continued to be conservators of the Alhambra, but in 1830s and 1840s, and uh, was not much done or known in terms of conservation. Mm-hmm. And Contreras just tried to make the place mm-hmm. really lovely uh-huh. and had his own ideas of what lovely and beautiful means. And in a lot of places, he stripped the original colors altogether. Uh-huh. And in other places, he repainted them with pigments, which were clearly 19th century, like uh-huh. Prussian blue. Uh-huh. So... In this sort of chapter on color and restoration and so on, what I try to do is to make all of these studies that are done by scientists today at mm-hmm. the Alhambra conservators in different materials, mm-hmm. and stucco and marble yeah. and wood and so on, available to English-speaking scholars uh-huh. that don't normally would go and read all of the reports done by yeah. chemists and so uh-huh. on. So with regard to Owen Jones, so he was there at the time when Contreras was really making something really, the Alhambra to look 
like a total fantasy yeah, in a uh -huh. way. Yeah. And it's he, romantic period. It's romantic yeah, period, yeah. exactly. Violet Le Duc is sometimes criticized for doing it also in France. So that's yeah. that's true. Yeah. It's romantic period. But Jones, I think he really did very accurate drawings and very accurate sketches to the scale, and he really had a very mm -hmm. impressive theory of geometry and mm -hmm. how the design system based on geometry with its various overlapping grids, how that was worked out. Mm -hmm. And he did really identify the colors. It's not that he came up with his idea of, mm -hmm. you know, in Islamic architecture, primary colors where gold was substituted for yellow. He actually, in the 19th century and still now in many precincts, you can still really take samples and know that those were actually original colors uh -huh. from the 14th century by their chemical composition, mineral, yeah. mineral composition. So I really think that his work is very, very important mm -hmm. and rather accurate on mm -hmm. the Alhambra. And what he did with the knowledge of the Alhambra and that he made a lot of money on not just publications, yeah. but he also designed all kind of objects and furniture. Mm -hmm. that So it was kind of a little side business that he made of the Alhambra. But uh -huh. his publications are important and I think they're pretty accurate. Yeah. And they spawned a whole architecture eventually, didn't they? I mean, drive-in movies. We had a place in Detroit called the Alhambra, I remember. And so, well, I'm um, teaching yeah. a course now at Bard, starting in a week on European and American Orientalism. Uh -huh. And it's really quite incredible. And this is a growing field now, Orientalist architecture, mm -hmm. especially European architecture. And I've written different things about it, but not specifically on this Alambresque style. But it was Jones and several architects, mm -hmm. European architects, a German architect in particular, Karl von Dimitsch, mm -hmm who really promoted the Alambresque style. Mm. And this Alambresque building, they were built everywhere. And the variety mm. of buildings is quite remarkable, from theaters mm -hmm. to banks mm. to bathrooms in royal palaces, mm -hmm. in villas, to Moorish, what they called Moorish smoking rooms, mm -hmm. to Alhambra theaters. The first one was in London mm. in the middle of the 19th century. And then, of course, Alhambra theaters came to the States. Mm. There were lots of them. In Detroit oh, was it, one, yeah. but there was about 28 or 27 oh, really? Alhambra theaters. Oh, yeah. 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 yeah, When you go on Wikipedia, you know in which yeah. towns. Oh, okay. Literally across the country, and oh. several of them are still standing buildings, but not. Oh. So. Yeah, interesting. So. so Jones was instrumental in promoting Alhambra's style, yeah. and even uh, buildings in Cairo were built in Alhambra's style. Oh, that's interesting. By Jones and Dibich. Uh -huh. oh. Them together went uh -huh. in 1870s. Yeah. And, you know, instead of promoting yeah. Ottoman style, yeah. the Alambresque oh, came to yeah. the uh -huh. east. Interesting. So, so is the criticism here the criticism of Orientalism, essentially, which is a kind of romanticism, and there's a phoniness about it anyway, kind of Disney-esque aspect. Any thoughts yeah. about that? I think no. Orientalism is such a huge, huge well, that's true. Yeah. topic, yeah. Yeah. and yeah. the fantasy, and it's coming into popular culture with the movies like, you know, Arabian Nights and yeah. Aladdin, and yeah. the Sheikh with Rudolf Valentino, yeah. and yeah. Uh, with the Thief of Baghdad. With, yeah. And then there was actually, in the 1926, there was a whole town called Opa Loka, uh -huh. built by a land developer, real estate de uh -huh. developer, and it still stands, uh -huh. a residential town, which was based on the stage sets of the Arabian Nights, uh -oh. the movie. Oh, that's interesting. So. <laughs> and people actually moved 
and yeah. lived in those towns and there's a bank and there's yeah. a factory huh. and then they had you hmm. know yeah. a day where they walked around in turbans yeah. and smoked pipes so the problem with it yeah. is it occludes the original culture and you lose all the nuance also what is really valuable in the culture so yeah. and we're talking about something that you can't really put a finger on i mean one it's not one culture it's not a culture no. by any means no. is it so homogenized and distorted and yeah. transformed to yeah. represent Western fantasies. Yeah. So can you talk about the building itself and maybe set the historical and cultural context for the Alhambra? Maybe talk about who were the Nazareths and when they ruled and how extensive was that rule in terms of geography in Spain? Well, the Nazareths were the last Muslim dynasty in Spain. So the Muslims invaded Spain in 711. Mm -hmm. There were many subsequent dynasties, divided territorial and so on. And the Nazareths were the last dynasty that ruled from 1235 mm-hmm. till the expulsion of Muslims and Jews, mm-hmm. till 1492 yeah. and reconquest yeah. of by the Christians. Oh, yeah. And their territory was rather small. It was basically greatly reduced. The whole Muslim kingdom was reduced to Granada province, more or less, and mm-hmm. some adjoining towns on the western coast because of the progress of the reconquest uh, of the Iberian Peninsula. So it was rather small. Geographically, it was rather small. It was sort of the last stronghold of the Muslim power. We do tend to idealize, but before the Reconquista, before Ferdinand and Isabella, this was sometimes now regarded as a multicultural society. It was was a multi-ethnic, multi-religious multilingual and it was kind of a territory uh-huh. of polities mm-hmm. some independent yes. independent polities that formed alliances not along religious lines uh-huh. but along political lines yeah, alliances and, it, and enmities also exactly, so that you get the same kind exactly. of internecine war that you have in the latin world you, you right. have going on in spain uh, right. so it was never along religious yeah. lines uh-huh. you know so if I might just say, with regard to the Nazareth, the dynasty, yeah. so Granada was their capital, uh-huh. and the Alhambra became this very important palatial city. It's uh-huh. not just one building, it's uh-huh. not one palace. Yeah. It was a whole complex of palaces, and mosques, yeah. and baths, and so yeah. on. So it's a whole city. So it's a palace, but it's also a fortress, yes? And as you say, a walled city. You also argue it's a place in which power and social practices are actually kind of structured by the design of a place? It is a fortified Palatine city, like uh-huh. any medieval city yeah. would be. Carcassonne, yeah. Uh-huh. Like yeah. Carcassonne, for instance. But it was really the city only for the court and uh-huh. for uh-huh. the royal family. Uh-huh. Everyone else, all the subjects, lived in the city of Granada down below. And it was a commanding sort of center of military power of mm-hmm. the sultan. So that's why it was extremely well fortified. We mm-hmm. don't know whether those fortifications were actually so highly functional. Granada was never attacked. Granada mm-hmm. was surrendered uh-huh. by the last sultan to the yeah. Christian kings. So we don't know whether it would have withstood the siege. Mm-hmm. But there were multiple features of the city, architectural features, that mm-hmm. would have suggested that it could have withstand the siege, well, the siege for instance, yes, all yeah, the yeah. connection with mm-hmm. water supply yeah. down below yeah. in the river and the aqueduct from uh, down below yeah, yeah. and 
way to store the water and the way to actually send signals from one tower to another. Yeah, and it's all um, parapets and and towers, towers, and yeah, local and, towers, yeah, and so yeah, on. Yeah, so. so it was like any medieval fortified yeah, city. Yeah. In the book, you use the term intermedial design, where you draw relationships between textiles, poetry, writing, architectural decoration, and ritual where the meaning and the symbolic effects of all of these are almost inextricably intertwined. And I wonder, can you talk about this, you know, sort of living environment, as you put it, in general terms in the book? Because that's how you approach the complex. It's through all these arts, not just the architecture, but the decorative elements, the furniture that went into it, the textiles that hung in it, the poetry that was recited there, the rituals that took place. The one difficult thing for a student who studies the lumber is that there are basically no textual sources uh-huh. that survived uh-huh. about the buildings, about the palatial city, about the life of the court, about the construction of the city. The only texts that we have is the poetry mm-hmm. that is inscribed on the buildings, mm-hmm. and there are over 3,000 inscriptions of all sorts, mm-hmm. sort of formulaic and Quranic and poetic epigraphy, yeah. and only one historical texts about one celebration, court celebration, mm-hmm. religious celebration, that survived, written by a vizier of one of the sultans, Muhammad V, uh-huh. in the 14th century. So we don't have a lot of textual sources to go by, yeah. and the only way to really study the building and try to understand it is from the actual evidence in mm-hmm. hand, from its architecture uh-huh. and its decoration, mm-hmm. and the poetry that was is written specifically for the building mm-hmm. or was inscribed after we know as a normal kind of part of the court life, mm-hmm. is a recitation of poetry. Yeah. So a lot of the poems that were recited at court, especially those that praised the sultan mm-hmm. and praised the religion and mm-hmm. praised the sultan's military accomplishments Mm -hmm. that were inscribed. So that kind of gives us some idea Mm -hmm. of what that living environment was. Mm -hmm. And it is, I I really do feel very strongly that poetry is the key to understanding. The better we understand the poetry, the better we understand how the spaces might have been used. Uh Because there are still a lot of spaces we have no idea how those spaces were used, Mm -hmm. how this rooms on the first floor or the second floor in Mm -hmm. one palace or another, how they were used. So if you take into account all the luxury objects that were there, all of the textiles that really transformed the permanent architecture Mm -hmm. for specific occasions into ephemeral settings for a particular ceremony, Mm -hmm. and if you read the poetry that is inscribed on the buildings, then it really lets you understand a little better. This is not the last word on the lumber, of course, but it lets you kind of think of the ways and how to understand Mm -hmm. the social life and political life, not religious life as much, but of that society. Yeah, extremely interesting because the building has writing on it, and it suggests a kind of consciousness the way writing always does, doesn't it? And I really love the way you use this to give you a kind of window into what might have happened here. And that the building itself, with the text inscribed on it, it gives you a cognitive space in a way to think about the actual space, and obviously is meant to do that. So the building itself, in a way, becomes a textual source. Yes, uh uh-huh, uh-huh. For understanding of the architecture. Yeah, really interesting. 
And then you look to uh, Alhazen, Alhazen, called in the Latin, as the theorist for this, right? For this cognitive science, basically, behind it. So can you tell us about that, Alhazen? I was interested in him because mm-hmm. he was, first of all, a scientist. Yes, if uh-huh. all the medieval Arabic aestheticians wrote about aesthetics, it was all in religious terms. Yeah. They sort of had the theological mm. foundation. Alhazen was really a polymath. He wrote... Uh-huh treatises on sciences only, and he wrote actually several treatises on architecture that have been lost, mm-hmm. but we know that he wrote what them. It's recorded, it's yeah. recorded mm-hmm. that he wrote them, but there were a lot. So he's 11th century scientist. But this treatise on the optics was actually translated into Latin and then vernacular languages already in the... 12th century? Yeah, Roger Bacon uh, was Roger certainly... Roger Bacon yeah, and Vitello, yeah, their yeah. texts are yeah. based on Ibn al-Haytham's yeah. treatise. Early 13th century, yeah. for sure. Yes, yeah. Yeah. So, Ibn al-Haytham was quite remarkable, having figured out how the eye itself works, and the optical nerve, and where mm-hmm. the image is produced. And he really articulated a theory of visual perception, which many postulations mm-hmm. of it have been confirmed by neuroscientists who uh-huh. don't give actually credit to Ibn al-Haytham, don't uh-huh. talk about Ibn yeah, al-Haytham, but talk yeah. about visual perception and neurological apparatus that Ibn al-Haytham already described, uh-huh. which is quite remarkable. Yeah. And how, how do we perceive an object? How do we judge its size mm-hmm. and shape and distance and colors and so on? And proportions. Uh-huh. So. Yeah, interesting. So the color theory behind the use of colors derives from this also then, doesn't it? Yeah. It does, uh-huh. it does. And it's a fascinating part, especially in the Alhambra, because uh, many um, scientists who work in neuro, what they call neuroart history, but uh-huh. basically yeah. the theory of visual perception, and what we see in the Alhambra, and what we read in the poetry about the Alhambra, about kinetic effect. Uh-huh. I thought that was surfaces. fascinating, absolutely fascinating part of your book, uh, I, the way you talked about thank that, you. especially thank looking you. at the images that you have. Yeah, uh, I, I found yeah. it really very interesting, interesting part of the description in the poetry mm-hmm. of how this vaults made of stalactites, that's the word uh, that is used usually in scholarship in English, of the Mukarna elements, three-dimensional, mm-hmm. geometrically constructed elements that look like an enormous beehive, this mm-hmm. gorgeous walls. And it's the poets who say, when they look at them, they see rotating spheres. Of course, now those walls lost most of its original color, yeah. color yeah. but we still can detect the bright blue and the bright red, yeah. original colors, and gold leaf yeah. as well. And if you look at Ibn al-Haytham's theory mm-hmm. and you compare it to the experiments done by neuroart historians, mm-hmm. so historians of visual perception, who are describing the kinetic effects that are produced by colors, not because the colors are primary or because the color contrasts, yeah. but because the colors are of the same luminosity they create an effect of vibration. You can't quite distinguish the relationship of a blue element to uh, the red so element. So figure background is... Figure, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Figure a ground kind of uh, unstable. Yeah. And this is the actually experiments that were done by many artists. Yeah. Oh, uh, interesting. And, yeah. um, I wrote an article a while 
back on French artists who worked in the 1960s, uh-huh. François Morlet, uh-huh. and who precisely, he went to the Alhambra, he was so uh-huh. impressed, but he already was experimenting with the luminosity, and he produced this, you know, flat paintings, but then also installations, uh-huh. where he wants people to feel unstable and cr- totally crazed, uh-huh. and where he <laughs> actually did cover surfaces uh-huh. with red and blue little squares mm-hmm. of the same luminosity, and uh-huh. he's talking about it. Oh, that's really fascinating. So, Ibn Haytham talked about it, yeah. and it seems that the craftsmen uh-huh. and it, architects... It enters right into the, the They actually... The it's, design, there's no yeah. way uh-huh. of really proving yeah. that they had Ibn Haytham yeah. text. But you have the theory, but and the, you have the object in front of you, and you, you, can, the, you, can, exactly. you can see, you know, the sphere spinning when you walk into the wall. Or um, what was really fascinating were the dados where water was uh, emulated in a sense, uh, uh, glistening water uh, in a sense, where there was some sense of movement and also in some of the overhead areas, uh, a movement of sunlight through moving leaves. Mm -hmm. Um, Very kinetic and very Mm -hmm. much dependent on sort of optical illusions. But you can see the ripples on the surface the same as you you would see on water, probably the water in a pool outside. Just one more comment about uh, Ibn Haytham in connection with optical illusions and color is what I tried to explore in one of the chapters is the relationship between color and geometry because Uh usually scholars who do architectural historians who study the Alhambra focus on geometry. But if you look at the relationship of color to geometry and you look especially at the dados of ceramic tile mosaics, Uh it becomes very clear that exactly the same design of the mosaics in which exactly the same colors are used, but in different configurations, uh-huh, yeah. you would read this design in a very different way. Mm-hmm. You perceive it as a different design. Mm-hmm. You might see sort of lines in yes. parallel lines yeah. uh-huh. uh, going yeah. horizontally yeah. or diagonally, or you perceive a rhomboid kind of grid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you perceive different things, yeah. and it all depends. Different on, forms, even yeah. though they're they the forms the same are the geometry. same. The yeah. grid is the same. Yeah, but you see. The pieces are cut in the same way uh of ceramic tile mosaic, but they appear totally different. Oh, interesting. So so the craftsmen really knew what they were doing. It was not trial and error. So the Alhambra is a whole experience here to someone coming into it at the time, isn't it? I mean, a whole sensory, you know, cognitive, linguistic experience. It seems designed. I mean, it seems... Very deliberate. Deliberate, yeah. yeah. And I think, of course, it's a total kind of cognitive immersion. It's the colors, it's the smells you go through. Ah. Through open spaces of courtyards and gardens and Mm -hmm. rooms and palaces and balconies that Mm -hmm. overlook. So there's a sense of smell and, of course, the sight and the site is quite important and sight lines and angles uh-huh. are yeah. important and different surfaces and mm-hmm. in the sort of multiplicity of surfaces and materials mm-hmm. you know it really creates a very very rich visual experience and aesthetic experience so the question is with the poetry uh, how did the poetry that is inscribed in the walls in the building help mold the visitors understanding more specifically I mean does, does the poetry offer clues to how it should be read I think the Poetry offers clues to how you should experience the building, the building and of its uh-huh, yeah. meaning. Uh, most of the poetry, or a lot of it, is inscribed really at eye level, uh-huh. so to be read from a standing position mm-hmm. or from the sitting position on mm-hmm. the floor. 
in any precinct, in any important room. And in poetry really does offer the figurative language that ignites your imagination. Yeah, but it's self-reflexive here in some places, isn't it? And there's a list of different kinds of figures that you outline that, that is actually written on the wall. So, yes, yeah, oh, no. yes. So the poetry in the Alhambra and the Nazarene period follows very mm. much the uh, theory of mm-hmm. medieval Arabic poetics with specific tropes uh-huh. used in the language of the poetry, mm-hmm. let's say, like caesura and antithesis yeah. yeah. and something like prosopopeia. None of yeah. No one listening would need to know it, but one of the most important tropes that I really look at, because it's an interesting trope, and it's a trope of prosopopeia, uh-huh. which yeah. gives first-person voice mm-hmm. to otherwise inanimate yeah. objects. Yeah, it, it's mentioned in the Latin rhetorics like Aristotle, right? But not really built on much. I mean, you don't find it in literature a lot. No, you don't find it in medieval, inscribed on medieval objects, unless you find it on architecture of some medieval churches where Christ is uh, represented, yes, yeah. you know, on the facade yeah, of yeah, the portal yeah. and he is holding yeah, the Bible yeah, and or, he is the door or, and he says... A phylactery, maybe. Yeah. Right. And in some Byzantine buildings, but very, very yeah. few. So okay, here so just the architecture talks, talks to, to the you. So, that, so what is the prosopopoeia? I mean, it's the building addressing you as you're standing The building there. is yes, actually yes, yeah. engaging you in a dialogue yes, and yeah. says, stop and look at me yes, yeah. and think about it and contemplate. Yeah. And the building very often describes itself uh-huh. in terms of, I am beautiful, it describes its materials, mm-hmm. techniques in, in which it has been constructed. It talks about the symbolic meaning of the sultan and royal power. Uh-huh. But mainly what I think the poetry does, and of course all this poetry can be read only, you know, the building itself, uh, yeah. the whole palatial complex itself is built for the for the court. Mm-hmm. All of them yeah. are highly educated, yeah. extremely uh-huh. literate, understand the tradition of medieval Arabic poetry mm-hmm. and they know how to read it mm-hmm. they know that the pause has to be taken to kind of process it and to ignite so to go in the process going back to Ibn al-Khaifam for a moment from visual perception mm-hmm. to imagination uh-huh. to cognition uh-huh. and those three steps are very very important mm-hmm. and poetry serves as a guide mm-hmm. ah. to lead you from virtual perception to imagination to, to cognition it's sort of a contemplative process. It's yeah, a very yeah. contemplative process. And poetry actually stops you at important thresholds. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, oh, yes, right in the threshold. Right, right in the right threshold. Right on the doorway, yes. That's yeah. right. So that's so interesting, right. yeah. I found it extremely fascinating because there's a lot of curatorial writing now about, you know, what's called thing theory loosely. It's a, you know, it's, it's an attempt based on Heidegger's uh, essay on the origin of the work of art to look at things as something other than objects as subjects, essentially, in their own right, worthy of the, all the, uh, you know, the attention that, that the subject should get. And this does that immediately for you. It turns the building into a subject that's exactly. talking to you. It turns you into the object, in a exactly. sense, who's being addressed by the, exactly. uh, the building. And then the objects within the building, vases, that kind of thing, could do this also, couldn't they? Right. So, yes, so it's yeah. the objects that actually are the agents. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. And so the whole relationship of the subject. And and subject, the object, object is completely turned totally around. Yes, that's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. 
So there are a lot of, not a lot, but there are some objects that yeah. have been preserved, uh -huh. large ceramic vase and uh, several yeah. textiles yeah. that address in the first person yeah. voice, address yeah. the beholder. Yeah. So to spend time in a place like this, if, if Heidegger's right, this completely turn you around as a, as a human being. Your perception of what you are and what you're looking at, what the world is, is not, here is something for me to pick up and, and make into an object to serve me in a way that you're the object in a way. And, That's right. And the thing you're looking at is, uh, is, is what's invested with all subjectivity. So, really fascinating. Well, one of the uh, poems written on a very large ceramic vase, which is over five feet tall, mm -hmm. addresses the beholder and tells the beholder, you are adorned in the splendid ah, clothing, uh -huh. in which I interpret it is that the vase addressing the beholder, telling the beholder, look around you, you are actually dressed uh -huh. by the architecture. Uh -huh. So architecture is your clothing. Uh -huh. So it's an interesting, yeah, very interesting, interesting way to, yeah, to look very, at. very contemplative also, That's right. you know. So. That's right, yeah. yeah. So, um, also, of course, the very word text implies a relationship between literature and textiles. And then you talk a lot about textiles and how they might have been hung in the Alhambra. And also, you talk about the way textile patterns are set into the architecture itself, right? So, can you talk about textiles a bit? So, I look at one specific literary genre which originated in Muslim Spain, mm -hmm. in which the structure of the poem itself is very much like the structure of mm. a complex mm -hmm. luxury silk textile. Uh -huh. So the woven structure is very similar, mm -hmm. superimposed grids mm -hmm. in terms of weaving, in terms of design, and both of them are actually called by the same term, mm -hmm. term washa, uh -huh. which you see in the textual sources from other medieval Muslim countries mm -hmm. where they talk about this silk textiles. Mm -hmm. And then you see it in the poetic genre of Mawasha. So mm -hmm. I make connections between specific types of textiles mm -hmm. that were produced at the Nazarite court yeah. and poetry. Mm -hmm. And so there is the text is that, that uh -huh, overlaps. Yeah. But also what I am trying to make a point that the architectural decoration was not produced in vacuum, mm -hmm. that it was really produced oh. in tandem with textiles. Textiles, that's interesting. And that textiles played a really important role in defining the architectural structures and redefining them and making sort of, as I mentioned before, it is sort of an ephemeral uh -huh. set, yeah. staging for different religious celebrations or court celebrations mm -hmm. and court yeah. protocol. Mm -hmm. So they were quite connected where you can hang the textile on the openings, mm -hmm. you know, on the windows, on mm -hmm. the doors and the archways and create a very different... Um, yeah, different you, space. Yeah. Also, you guide people coming through. You guide sight That's lines, right. right? Yeah. That's right. And the so the question of access becomes especially ah, important: uh -huh, yeah. closing access or uh -huh. opening an access, yeah. and uh -huh. that is related to kind of also social hierarchy: uh -huh. who can uh -huh. enter, who can, uh -huh. who can not. Yeah, who can so, see, and how far uh, do I have to exactly. stand away to, to, to from the sultan? Um, That's right. You know, to see the sultan. So yeah, really fascinating. So the textiles are weaving the way language poetry is woven and then the, the textiles help to form a model for the architecture in a sense uh, in a sense, yeah, in a sense yeah. Yeah. or they yeah. you know sort of 
soft architecture. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. You have a really interesting passage near the end of the book where you quote Pierre Nora, one of my favorite theorists about memory, on the transformative role of memory in certain places. And it places the importance of ritual and ceremony right at the center of your whole discussion, in a way, you, you know, your use of this passage from Nora of the Alhambra and its phenomenology. So I wonder, can you talk about the building as, uh, you know, what Nora calls a lieu de mémoire, a memory place, and a site then of collective memory? Because I thought that did, it really tied your book together in the end in a really interesting way, that memory does tie it together in some way. Uh, yeah. It's important for sure. Um, well, I think, uh, thank you for reading it mm-hmm. so carefully, mm-hmm. uh, since there is only one text, mm-hmm. the text yes. that has been preserved, written uh-huh. by the court poet and vizier, Ibn al-Khatib, about one religious celebration in the Alhambra in 1362. Mm-hmm. And the text described the precincts where it took place. Mm-hmm. The text describes the hierarchical procession mm-hmm. to enter into for the high courtiers and visitors mm-hmm. to and from other polities and mm-hmm. uh, from abroad to enter into the sultan's present and then he describes the celebration that took place over a week and mm-hmm. the celebra- religious celebration was the celebration of the birth of prophet muhammad mm-hmm. and it coincided with a return from the exile of the reigning sultan muhammad v mm-hmm. returning from exile in fez he was in morocco was upseated by several of his relatives, and he returned and was the first big sort of uh, court celebration, religious celebration, of course. And it was a moment where he claimed his throne again. Mm -hmm. And the way I looked at the text, the description of this religious celebration, Mm -hmm. and of the poetry, there were mountains of poetry that were written for mm-hmm. this occasion and that were recited by all courtiers, court poets and, mm-hmm. and visitors from abroad, to really look at it as a creation of this hybrid formation of mm-hmm. the uh, site of collective memory, because mm-hmm. as Nora says, memory attaches itself to sites, mm-hmm. whereas history attaches itself to events. Mm-hmm. Oh. So then for Nora, it's a site of collective memory. It kind of has a mixed and hybrid formation in which historical events mm-hmm. transformed into collective memory. memory and there yeah. are tangible components to it and intangible. And mm-hmm. poetry, of course, and is in intangible yes. component where tangible is architecture mm-hmm. permanent and then ephemeral, there yeah. was a special royal tent erected for the occasion. So this celebration of the birth of Muhammad, on one hand, it combined a sort of traditional religious celebration Mm -hmm. that took place every year in every Muslim country. So it was connected to a specific historical moment, to a moment that marked the return of the Sultan to the throne, Uh that legitimized his power. And with all the recitation of poetry, became inscribed as a collective memory uh, as a return to yeah, power. Yeah. So in that sense, I think uh, the document itself is very, very important. Yeah. And uh, of course, the poets and the answers, 
there will never be another event like yeah, it that no. will remember it forever. Yeah, so the ceremony that takes place in the Alhambra, that's supported by the Alhambra, becomes a place where collective memory is, is gelled. Is formed. Gels, formed. Gelled. That's really yeah. interesting. You know. yeah. Considering the building has been occluded for so long in the midst of time, but in a way, yeah. it became a site of collective memory, memory. Yes. in the Muslim uh, world, yeah. contemporary yes, Muslim yeah, world. Yeah. Yeah. Because in many people's view, it's that time yeah. of the glorious, yeah. oh, that's interesting. glorious that is very Muslim interesting. past yeah. that is lost yeah. forever. So. so to some extent, it does what all the loss of all the archives undid. I mean, as you say, on the Alhambra itself, there's very little textual documentation left. Not much on the whole for all of Iberia, right? As I understand, I mean, not with regard to art and architecture. architecture but no. there are more historical. Texts, you know, there are some yeah. Nazarene texts that talk about inspection of fortresses along the coast, yeah, yeah. in which there's like a list, we inspected this fortress yeah. and it was fine, and then we inspected another one. Yeah. So last thoughts, I'm looking back over the book and thinking how impossible a task it seems for me to cover in an hour's conversation here the whole of what your study has to offer. I have an impression that there's almost too much here to comprehend, that the possibilities and threads of meaning, I mean, both in the monument of the Alhambra and in the cultural universe it illuminates, it's just too overwhelming. Too much overlooked culture, perhaps, to take in, especially as what you have to say starts resonating with traditions we're culturally more familiar with in in European studies. Uh, I'm thinking of myself as a medievalist here. Heaven knows so much uh, European culture must have absorbed something of this incredibly rich intellectually, aesthetically, and politically sophisticated culture in both the Renaissance and the medieval period that we know very little about today in the scholarship. And I mean, there's a great gate of understanding, it seems here, uh, to European culture in the Alhambra that needs to be opened so that more students of the past and present can discover all that it offers in terms of historical and cultural nourishment. So am I right about this? There's a kind of great unknowing here or occlusion or amnesia in a way about what seeds much of our own past, European culture I'm talking about here, that is just waiting there to be looked at again by serious scholars. Well, I think it might look like to you from a perspective of a Western medievalist. Yes. If you're a medievalist, you know, I was trained in Islamic art and architecture. I work on medieval topics, Mm -hmm. but I also worked on 19th and 20th century orientals. I work, I research, I write. But if you think from, I think it's kind of the parameters of our own field as art historians, Mm -hmm. I mean, you're a literature person, but art historians, if you are a Western medievalist, you do not necessarily study Islamic art. However, if you are an Islamicist, Mm There's no question that you take courses in Western medieval art. And I've taught Western medieval art. But there are more and more Islamicists who are writing Mm -hmm. about these intersections, who are writing about this exchange of ideas Mm -hmm. and exchange. I mean, you always talk about, no one talks about influence, but you always, there's exchange of ideas and the Mediterranean is this crossing ways Uh uh, from east to west and that we are becoming much, much, much more aware Uh of the intersections and intermingling of ideas and sciences Uh and cultures and 
after all, mm. you know, Vitello and um, Roger, Roger Bacon, Bacon yeah, huh? they knew it already in the mid-13th century, it yeah. was translated, so it was not such an isolation. It's yeah. from our perspective, yeah, exactly. it seems yeah, that yeah, way, yeah. but it actually was not. Yeah. And I think when you mentioned early in the first part of your question about, you know, that the book brings together so many different media, uh-huh. I think that was the idea. I really wanted to write a book. Uh-huh. in which we don't look in an isolated manner. Uh-huh. Architecture no, only, yeah. or from philological... Yeah. I'm not a philologist. Yeah, no. I read... Uh, no, it's a new trend in scholarship, though. Yvonne Allette spoke, and I just did an interview with her uh, about Raphael's uh, great monument in Rome. Uh, Villa Madonna. The Villa Madonna, yes. Yeah. And yeah. Very, very much she's really interested in the way poetry informs yeah, the building course. program. Sure, sure. And then, of course, you know, you, I read your book, and I start to wonder, well, maybe they knew the Islamic sources here and understood... You know, what palace architecture was about designing this villa. Um, well, the messages were connected through, yes. across the well, Mediterranean yes. yeah, with, yeah. Uh, with the Muslim world, yes, yeah. trading with the Ottomans. And then I'm convinced uh, Chrétien de Troyes Percival is very much based on Avicenna's faculty psychology derived from Aristotle, almost an allegory of it mm-hmm. in the way um, he looks at Percival's formation, his mm-hmm. cognitive formation from the time he's a child on and learns to understand things. I'm sure it's there. And then, of course, you know, you read Troubadour poetry and you think to yourself, where did this come from? It just didn't come out of nowhere. There had to be sources for this somewhere. And of course, you know, these Arabic sources. Uh, well, and there are scholars who work on it, on yeah, connections yeah. between uh, medieval Arabic poetry oh, and the and, Troubadour and, poetry. Yeah, very interesting. So anyway, it must be exciting for students to be standing in the doorway anyway, I would guess. So. I guess so. Yeah. It's for the future researchers to yeah, yeah. think of new avenues of yeah, research. Yeah. Part of the problem here is it isn't just Arabic that's occluded. Spanish is occluded. It's not generally regarded as a foundation language for art historical research. It's German and French, of course, and English, of course. And it so, continues to be so. And, yeah. and that's why we're, we're so focused on this. And then, yeah. of course, all of Eastern Europe is also occluded. Them. I mean, you can only know so much in so many languages, I know, but even right. so. so. So part of the problem here is there is a, a, a rich tradition of Spanish scholarship, art historical scholarship here. Which is known to a handful of people. Uh, people who can or, read sp- Spanish, who, yes, Well, yeah, yeah. maybe in other fields it's different. Maybe yeah. in golden age Spanish painting, people who teach yeah. Spanish Baroque painting yeah. know Spanish, but yeah. there are very few... There are not too many Islamicists in the United States no, yeah. or in Europe, for that yeah. matter, in the English-speaking world yeah. who work on the Spanish material. Of mm-hmm. course, all of them speak Spanish, but yeah. read Spanish, speak Spanish. But I think uh, for someone who is, a, let's say, even a generalist mm-hmm. in the Islamic field yeah. of art and architecture but works on Safavid Iran or something, yeah. or on Ottoman Turkey would not know the Spanish scholarship and that was one of the mm. ideas mm. in my book to, to really review a lot of most important and mm-hmm. most recent mm-hmm. scholarship that mm-hmm. is done in Spain mm-hmm. both by philologists by textile conservators and conservators of different media in the Alhambra uh-huh. so to make it available to them yeah. so can you tell me what you're working on now well, right now I'm finishing an essay presented it at two conferences in Sofia and in Istanbul, both of them are related, but not exactly the same, just mm-hmm. in, in the fall. 
on the train station that was built in the city of Toledo in mm-hmm. Spain, uh-huh. uh, and it's built in this style which was called Neo Mudejar, mm-hmm. something like let's say yeah, Neo Islamic okay, yeah. style. Mm-hmm. So I'm interested in this building in the context of the debate on national architectural style. Uh-huh. So that's what I'm working uh-huh. on now. That's one of the mm-hmm. projects, and it will be. It has to be finished in a couple yeah. of months, so it will oh, be yeah, finished. Yeah. So, but it's a very interesting, interesting mm. project. And then I work on another medieval project. I was invited to be a, a member of a collaborative project in Spain on architecture and poetry. Oh, so oh. I will do a little bit more on the Alhambra, but I want mm-hmm. to look at other buildings and oh, other yeah. poetry. Not that the poetry is inscribed there, but at the poetic tradition at other Muslim medieval yeah. courts uh-huh. and uh-huh. poetry in which buildings talk to each other yes. and oh. compete with each other. How <laughs> yeah. poems written about it. Yeah. Oh. So, oh, really? Oh, so, that's, that's fascinating. So, so I have several medieval projects mm-hmm. at different stages of research and this project on Oriental. So the train station was built in mm-hmm. 1919. So and it's important mm-hmm. city, Toledo is an yeah. imperial city and it's important debate among architects mm-hmm. who are debating getting together at architectural congresses and mm. debating. Mm. So this is the oh, sort of the end yeah. of the nation building yeah. period yeah. in which France wants to build everything yeah. neo-Gothic or is oh, yeah. neo-Byzantine yeah. or it's yeah. neo-Romanesque. National styles. So, national yes. style. yeah, yeah. so libraries that you worked in for the project, any interesting libraries that you really love working in or interesting things that have happened to you in libraries? Well, there are two favorite places to work. One mm-hmm. is in Granada in this research institute, mm-hmm. um, which has a really phenomenally great library mm-hmm. and it's also is situated in a building or housed the library in the building that is a 15th century oh. Nazareth building oh, which is very oh. very beautiful mm-hmm. it's a villa overlooking the Alhambra oh, oh, okay. so it's lovely to sit and have mm-hmm. lunch in oh, the yeah. little garden I made very good friends uh-huh. the two librarians oh. whom I befriended and who've been friends for the last oh. 20 years so it's but there's another very good library for Islamists, and it's in Madrid, uh-huh. and it's Islamic library, yeah. which is uh-huh. which is really great. Yeah. Uh-huh. So uh, okay, so I'd like to thank you, Olga, for coming to talk to us today about your book, "Reframing the Alhambra: Architecture, Poetry, Textiles, and Court Ceremonial," published by Edinburgh University Press, just out. Thank you so much for inviting me and for a wonderful conversation to add to many conversations uh, over the years years, about Ibn al-Haytham and poetry. And to be continued. And to be continued, okay. Thank you so much.